This morning's reading comes from Romans, starting at chapter 11, verse 33, and finishing at chapter 12, verse 8. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, who are many form of one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And so we turn to our second reading, which is coming from Romans, and it is chapter 12, and verses 9 to 21. So Romans 12, starting at verse 9. And it's usually headed in the Bibles as love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, well, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, 
you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we leave the injunction there. When we roll out of bed on a Sunday morning and come to church to worship God, what do we actually do when we get here? Service of worship always contains a selection of hymns and songs, which we sing with probably varying degrees of enjoyment. And the liberated amongst us have waved our hands and clapped our hands and stamped our feet this morning. We listen to readings, prayers, someone talking for 20 minutes or longer. We might put some money in an offering basket. We may have a conversation with other people at either end of the service. It all sounds pretty tame, really, doesn't it? And you can understand why people who don't believe in God would rather stay in bed on a Sunday morning. Because it's the encounter with God that happens through the medium of these varied activities that make church on a Sunday morning an act of worship. And whenever we gather here or any other place in the company of Christians, Jesus is present. He's with us all the time, of course. I was at the British New Testament conference yesterday, and for some of us, the day started with a service of communion. Afterwards, somebody joined us and said, I felt unrighteous because I went swimming instead. But made the point that God was with him in the pool as much as God had been with us as we had the Eucharist together. But when we gather together in worship, it gives us an opportunity consciously to focus on the reality of God to raise our awareness of our experience of his love and grace and mercy, and in the company of others to make a personal response to him. Clearly, worship happens not through the mechanical process of turning up to church on a Sunday morning and singing whatever words happen to appear on the screen. Worship happens when our hearts and our minds are engaged as well, so that we have a real life-changing encounter with the living God. And that's what a service of worship is designed to facilitate. And I'm thankful to God that Sunday by Sunday, such encounters with the living God do seem to take place here at Brighton Road. People are changed through being here. And that's how it should be. But unless our hearts and our minds are engaged, everything we do here is just a matter, really, of of going through the motions, joining in with what everybody else is doing. For worship to be real, it needs to be internal. That in the ancient world is what people meant when they talked about rational worship or a spiritual act of worship, as the New International Version translates Paul's phrase. So the Jewish philosopher Philo, who was around at the same time, talked about the need to worship God with the rational part of our soul. And the man, and for Philo, sorry ladies, it was the man as opposed to the woman, the man who worships God with his intellect and reason, and whose life has been purified by virtue, that man is himself a most holy sacrifice. A sacrifice which is completely and in all respects pleasing to God. So in the ancient world, worship consisted of a the rational or or spiritual or internal dimension which engaged the heart and mind. That was a sacrifice 
that was acceptable to God. And it was real because it was internal. It wasn't just going through the motions on an external basis. And that's surely correct. We would want to say a hearty amen to that. But for Paul, it doesn't go far enough. Because he redefines rational or spiritual worship and makes it altogether more profound and challenging. For Paul, spiritual worship, real worship, true worship is not just a matter of the intellect. It engages us as whole people. Just doing something external doesn't count for very much. It needs to be internal to be real. But for Paul, it needs to come from inside to outside again. So it's not just what we think with our minds and feel with our hearts. It's what we do with our bodies as well, our whole being, everything about us. Worship is a response to God with the totality of our being, every single bit of our lives. So he says real worship, rational worship, spiritual worship is offering our bodies to God, as sacrifices to God. Sacrifices which are alive, which are holy, and which are pleasing to him. That's what worship is really all about. So yes, worship needs to go beyond merely going through the motions and joining in with everybody else as we sing the songs or hymns. And of course, worship needs to engage our hearts and minds as well. But even beyond that, real worship needs to be lived out through the dedication of our lives in their entirety to God. Everything we do with our bodies 24-7 should be An act of worship to the God who created these bodies and who has redeemed them for his purpose. Redeemed them for eternal life through the physical death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ for our sins. So the whole of life is worship. Not just the hour or so we spent here on a Sunday morning, but the other 167 hours in the week that we spend outside of church. And what do we do with our bodies here in church? If you aren't on one of the innumerable rotors that govern the weekly routine of church life, we come, we stand up, we sit down, we sing songs, we listen, and we say amen. We have a conversation, maybe give them a hand or a hug if we're feeling particularly demonstrative. We may also drink a cup of coffee. Is that all God wants from us as physical embodied beings? Of course not. He wants the lives we live in these bodies of ours to be dedicated to his service so that everything we do becomes an act of worship him. Using the varied gifts and talents, our time and our skills as his toolbox, here in the service at church, at work, at home, in our leisure time as well. Do you stop belonging to God when you walk outside the doors of Brighton Road Baptist Church? No, you don't. You belong to him 24-7, anywhere you go, whatever you're doing. But if you belong to him at every moment of every day, in the concrete realities of everyday life, what we do in and through these bodies that belong to God should be an act of worship dedicated to him. That's why it's good at the start of every single day to pause and dedicate that day to God. The time, what we will be doing, the people we we will encounter, what we think, what we feel, our activities, these physical bodies, all the opportunities for living with which the day will present us. Lord, enable me today to praise you by what I do 
and by how I live. How does Horatius Bonner's hymn put it? Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise, that my whole being may proclaim thy being and thy ways. Not for the lip of praise alone, not in the praising heart I ask, but for a life made up of praise in every part. So shall no part of day or night from sacredness be free, but all my life in every step be fellowship with thee. That's the language of 1866. A more modern perspective is offered by the message, the colloquial paraphrase of the New Testament with which we started our service. Here's what I want you to do, God be helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Over the next few weeks on Sunday mornings and in small groups, we're going to be following a course entitled Fruitfulness on the Frontline, which will enable us to explore what it means to live for God and make a difference on our front line, which are the places where we spend significant time during the week in contact with non-Christians. Because as the New Testament commentator Jimmy Dunn puts it quite correctly, it's as part of the world and within the world that Christian worship is to be offered by the Christian. We dedicate ourselves, our little bit of the world and our part in it, our role in it, to God as an act of worship and dedication and offering. So worship can't just be something we do in church. Spiritual worship has to be something we do out there in the world by how we live, by what we do with our bodies and how we use them in God's service. Our whole lifestyle is to be an act of spiritual or rational worship, holy and pleasing to God. The whole of our embodied life is to be dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. That's challenging enough. But does even that go far enough? Is the image of presenting our bodies as a sacrifice to God, putting ourselves on the altar, is it even more radical than than offering whatever we do to God as an act of worship, an act of service? Robert Jewett puts it this way, a sacrifice killed and burned on the altar is hardly the appropriate metaphor for mopping the floor. Because the idea of offering our body as a sacrifice to God goes beyond choosing to, worship, choosing to worship God by how we live our embodied everyday routines. There is a sense of abandonment to God in that language of sacrifice. The point of a sacrifice is that once it's placed on the altar, it belongs, every single bit of it, 100% to the God to whom it is dedicated. Once a sacrifice has been placed on the altar, you can't change your mind and take it back again. It is given over totally, completely, irrevocably to God. Paul is talking about giving God the title deeds of your life here. Signing possession of who you are over to his ownership. The difference between choosing to serve God on a daily basis by how you live and offering your body as a sacrifice to be placed on the altar, is summed up by the different contributions made by the chicken and the pig to a full English breakfast. For the chicken, the daily act of laying an egg is part of its routine. It's something it does faithfully all its life. For the pig, the act of providing the bacon is a far more costly, irrevocable, total commitment. That's what sacrifice 
entails. So in the context of the ancient world where worship pretty much always involves sacrificing an animal on an altar in the temple, Paul says for followers of Jesus, worship means placing your entire being on the altar as a sacrifice, completely given over and dedicated to God. That's what makes our worship holy. Because the worship is the offering of ourselves and setting ourselves aside to God. In our lives, we tend to adopt a wide variety of different roles. We're one person at church, another at home, another at work, or down the pub, or on the sports pitch, or on the allotment. But wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever image we present ourselves to other people, ultimately we are who we are in these bodies. And we are called to present the totality of that to God. Not merely to offer the time that we spend or the roles that we fulfill in these different areas of our lives to him, but who we are. All of that on the altar to God. And having done that, it follows that having given our body to God, our worship is expressed in how we live our embodied existence. And that embodied existence is holy because it's been dedicated to God on the altar. And it's pleasing to God precisely because it embraces the totality of our being, who we are, not just on the inside, but on the outside as well. No going through the motions. Not even just coming to church on a Sunday morning with open hearts and with our brains switched on. But everything about who we are, dedicated exclusively, irrevocably, totally to God. As a sacrifice which is living, holy, and pleasing to him. We might pause at that point consider the extent of of what we are requested to give and hesitate what right does God have to that kind of commitment from us well God is your creator and your redeemer without God you wouldn't even exist in the first place he's made you who you are and without God you're Life has no future. The body in which you live will succumb to old age, disease, some accident or act act of violence. Beyond that, only God is the one who's able to bring life to these mortal bodies for eternity again. You owe your life, your very existence now, and your eternal destiny to the God who created you. And who you are and what you will become is in the hands of the God who has redeemed you and given his son for you. Holding nothing back, but giving his son to be not a living sacrifice, but a sacrifice dying on the cross to redeem us from sin, to make us God's chosen possession, to redeem us from death and give us the gift of eternal life. God created the body you live in. God has redeemed that body for eternity through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The life of God's son sacrificed that we might have eternal life. And so because of that, because of all that God has done in view of God's mercy, Paul says, we should offer our bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to God. Because this, and nothing less than this actually, This is our reasonable worship. This is spiritual worship. This is what worship is really all about. Let's pray.
Lord, we're challenged by the commitment that you seem to require of us. We want to keep so much of our lives to ourselves. Yet, Jesus, you warned that if we try and hold on to our lives, we'll lose them. It's by losing our lives for your sake that we gain them. Thank you, Lord, for holding nothing back when you entered this world to lay down your life as a sacrifice for us. Lord, take our weak will, our wavering commitment, our our struggling faith and bring us to that point where we can offer ourselves to you. In an act of abandonment, offering all that we are and placing it on the altar for you. Thank you that you call us to be a living sacrifice because you don't drag us from life to death, but you redeem us from death for eternal life. Thank you for the purpose you have for us for the gifts you've given to us. Thank you for making us your holy people. Thank you for the chance to please you by how we live. Lord, your commitment to us is total and unwavering. Instill within us that same commitment to you, that we might live for you, not just by what we do, but in terms of who we are. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.